Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm going to go ahead and get right into this episode. It is a long one with my friend Brooke Applegate, who is the Director of Education at the Los Angeles Arboretum, as well as a professional whimsy maker. This episode aired previously in two parts. Episodes 33 and 34. This is, is part the director of, of the education at the Los Angeles series Arena, where I bring where those episodes together and of her time being charmed and episode in its entirety. So please grab a cuppa and join Brooke and I in this She's week's also in the company of friends guide and joy. Providing intimate tours of historic locales in Hollywood and downtown Los Angeles. Bonus food and drinks are often included. She's also worked with inspiring organizations doing good things for the planet, such as Tree People, Kids Space, Children's Museum, and the La Brea Tar Pits and Page Museum. She's taught English to non-native English speakers, and she has aptly dubbed herself a professional whimsy maker, having attended a number of her lovely, definitely whimsical and wholly inspired parties. I fully agree with that title. She is one of my most treasured friends, and I am so happy to be able to share this in the company of friends talk with you today. So please grab a cuppa and join Brooke and me for some great conversation. Hi, Brooke. I happen to be sitting next to her, too. (laughs) Hello. It's so good to be here. Brooke made me this amazing breakfast of vegan chicken and waffles. And we had some mimosas and strawberries and cherries and like some really good conversation just before we started here. So it's going good over here. You're currently, and for a really long time, you've been doing some really awesome things in your life. You're a director of education, a tour guide of Honestly, one of the greatest cities in the country, Los Angeles, a traveler, a gatherer of friends, a conjurer of fun and whimsy. And you literally seem to walk around with your finger on the pulse of what is the essence of delight and wonder. I'm just wondering what influences your perspective on life and where do you get your daring inspiration from? (laughs) It sounds cheesy but honestly my parents and specifically my mother my mom was a non-professional whimsy maker and I don't even think she realized 
that she was doing something so unique and magical, but she stayed at home with us until I was eight. And I am just one of these very rare and lucky people who had a genuinely magical childhood. I mean, I had the childhood that every every kid should have. And obviously adolescence was difficult, you know, challenges came through once we came of age, but the years that it mattered, the years that imprinted on me, I, I had access to genuine magic and that was my reality. So somehow, and, and I guess the how is a longer conversation, but somehow I've been able to keep that channel open into adulthood. I'll give you a perfect example. Every single holiday, my mom would add some sort of magical touch to, right? And again, I don't even think she realized she was doing something so special and unique. I think she was just enjoying motherhood, right? I think she was creative and she was enjoying motherhood. But like this one St. Patrick's Day, me and my two brothers and I sat down at the breakfast table and there were bowls on the table with dry cereal in them, which I thought was a little bit odd, but I was like, well, but it's a holiday, so she's doing something special for us. So <laughs> we poured milk into our bowls and it came out of the curtain white and it came up in the bowls green. Oh my God. And we thought, holy shit, the leprechauns were here. <laughs> so every St. Patrick's Day, we would find gold scattered around the house, right? Or we'd find gold in our lunch boxes when we got to school which was like rocks my mom had collected and spray painted, right? But that particular morning, I had <laughs> I had woken up and I had pulled the covers off of myself and there was gold in bed with me. What? And so at that point I was like, <laughs> this is definitely not my parents. This is clearly the leprechauns because like it's in my bed, right. you know? Of course my mother, she pulled the covers off of me when I was deep asleep, but for me, even when I got to an age where, like, I kind of knew my mom was behind it, it had zero impact on how magical it was. So much so that, like, my mom still makes Easter baskets for us, and we're all 40 and above, because it's just, it's charming, you know? And adults enjoy that stuff as much as children do. Oh, totally. You know? So... I don't know. I think that, that that foundation is a huge, huge part of it. But my mom had had that in her genes to begin with, so I think there's something genetic about it, too. I mean, my mom is 81 years old and still wants to go out dancing, so. Right, and dresses up in heels and, and always in glitter yeah. and looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I know that if you are to drive past your mom's house, say on Valentine's Day, the whole front facade of the building itself has hearts on it. It's yeah. just, just strewn across the front. And she's just very festive. You know, the Halloween parties that we've had over at the house, there's always the skeleton. Yeah. But why not, right? Yeah. Like, the world is kind of a dumpster fire. Not just now. Like, it always kind of has been. Regardless of political or social happenings, being alive is so painful. Even if you have the most cake life, it's painful. So why not put hearts on your house? Yeah. Like metaphorically and literally, you know? Exactly. I think that's one of the things that I've always told my kids is, you know, the one thing that's guaranteed in life is that it's going to be hard. And it's up to you to find the magic in it. 
and make it good. And create that magic. You can't find it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like your autumn dinners that you have, those are always so magical. You have everybody dress up as something that has to do with autumn, that time of the year. And everybody brings something amazing to the table, something edible, great conversation. There's always good music going on and community, just, you know, that unity of everybody. And it's, it is magical. You know, I love the whimsy of all of that. Yeah. It's primitive. We're tapping into something kind of ancient. Exactly. Gathering, feasting, communing, you know? Yeah. And I think that, I think that even if we don't recognize it in the moment that this is something primitive we're participating in, I think on a cellular level, our our organisms are responding to that drumbeat. It feels kind of like at home, Mm -hmm. you know, like you've you've come home when you go to these gatherings Mm -hmm. and everybody's so warm and and inviting and and it is, it's that tribal primitiveness Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're hungry for it, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties in with your degree in anthropology, mm-hmm. right? So you're always studying mm-hmm. social behaviors and drives and what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. And um, always trying to add to that in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. And so just to add to that, one of the best places for somebody who is an anthropologist is a museum. I just think that they add to, as well, the entire thread of all of the whimsy and magic that you create because they're full of wonder and beauty and curiosity. And I think curiosity is so important. It's one of our biggest driving forces to be curious about the world. And it leads to such things as happiness and, you know, expanding our knowledge base and all of that. And you've worked at some of my favorite museums, which are the Page Museum at the La Brea Tar Pits, the very hands-on and sensory-stimulating Kids Space Children's Museum, and now the spectacular grounds and campus of the Los Angeles Arboretum. You were also president of Emerging Museum Professionals for a time. Have you always wanted to work in museums? Yeah. When I was little, my parents would take me to the La Brea Tar Pits and they have that fishbowl laboratory. Yes. Where you can look in and you can see the scientists cleaning and sorting fossils. Most kids are obsessed with the idea of fossils for some reason, which would be an interesting thing to research, right? Like why? I think it gives us kind of a connection. You know, there, there's something taboo about bones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's also something about them that tells us something existed before us. Mm-hmm. There was a time, a space, an environment that is different from mm-hmm. anything that we ever know. And so you you want to participate in that discovery. That's, that's where the curiosity comes and in. And for kids, I think, like things like dinosaurs or giant mammoths, because they're prehistoric and extinct, they kind of exist in the realm of fantastical and fantasy creatures, Mm -hmm. but then you have fossils to prove that they exist. So for kids, there's probably an element of, it validates the existence of fantasy, you know? Um, But yeah, for me as a kid, I used to stare in at that and 
I can still remember the smell of the tar pits from when I was a kid. And my first day on the job, I inhaled, and I was six years old again. So going to places like that as a kid, going to the Hollywood Bowl, going to the tar pits and stuff like that, they just enchanted me a lot because it was my passport to a much bigger world and my ticket to time travel and all of that. Mm-hmm. I was a passionate, curious kid. Like, that just, those museums were portals for me. Right. You know? So, yeah, I think I always wanted to be a part of that world to some extent. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, you watch films like Night at the Museum. <laughs> it, it did so well because it's got the excitement, like you said, of the dinosaurs, of the discovery. And I like that historical aspect and just learning and discovering new things. The La Brea Tar Pits, when I was a kid, was definitely up there at the top of my list, you know. It's still um, completely amazing. It's an active prehistoric paleontological dig in the middle of Los Angeles. There's no other place yeah. like that in the world. There are tar pits all over the world. There's no active paleontological dig that's been going on since, for almost 100 years now, in the heart of the city. Where you can just like, you can be driving down Wilshire Boulevard for a business meeting and then walk into Hancock Park and just see a giant ground sloth femur. You know, that's incredible. It's crazy. It is, yeah. It, it is like walking into a portal, like you said. You know, just seeing those woolly mammoths in that pool at the very front going over to Pit 91. Sometimes, you know, you walk through there and somebody or something, I don't know, has trekked through tar and you see it trekked around there. And it's like, wow, you know, how much is down there? And just the fact that they're still pulling up the giant sloths and the dire wolf and the saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths in Los Angeles is just crazy. Yeah, it's wild. It's incredible. And it, you know, it connects us, again, it connects us to our ancestors. And I'm not even necessarily talking about our human ancestors. I'm just talking about our Earth ancestors, you know? Like other organisms that have shared this space with us and endured life on this planet. So it it hooks us into the time thread that we're a part of. Right, right, and reconnects us there. Um, Yeah, you know, going into that museum and looking at that dire wolf wall, Mm -hmm. it's like all of those got pulled out of Pit 91, right? Um, I I actually don't know if they all got pulled out of that pit. There are loads of pits around Mm -hmm. the tar pits, and at the turn of the century, that's when they were drilling for oil there, and that's when they started, that's when they first started finding and preserving bones, so I'm not sure. What did you do there? I was the manager of education, overseeing youth and adult programs that help to translate the scientific information for the public, so that's what education always is Mm -hmm. at museums, right? They're not the experts in the field, they're not the researchers, they're the translators. So they're the ones that take complex subject matter and repackage it in prose that's accessible to people from all walks of life, right? Because the way you're going to deliver information about dire wolves to a six-year-old is going to be totally different from the way you're going to deliver it to a college student, and that's going to be different from the way you're going to deliver it to a fossil enthusiast who's in town from England. But you're giving them all the same information. You just, you're a translator. That's awesome. Was the next place that you went to from their kids' space? I moved to D.C. after the tar pits. 
That's right. And then when I came back from D.C., I went to Kids Space, but I got my start in the museum field at a tiny Victorian house museum in Glendale because I've always loved everything Victorian. So Glendale and Brand Park, they have this little Victorian house, and on Sundays they would have docents dressed in gowns that would give people tours of them, and I was always very charmed by it. And then this one Christmas when I was 19, they were doing their annual candlelight Christmas tours, so a couple friends and I dressed up in our Victorian gowns, and we did the tour, and one of the docents asked us, she just basically told us we looked so appropriate and asked if we'd be interested in volunteering. So two of us did, Jenny and I did. And for me, it was more a matter of, well, I feel like a Victorian anyway, so now I actually get to wear my Victorian gowns and hang out in a Victorian house for two hours. So <laughs> that- You transcended yes, time. Exactly, right? I got to time travel on Sundays. Yeah. Um, but then the more I started giving tours, the more I realized how much I loved that interpretation aspect. And because it was a small museum run by volunteers, when I approached the curator, who was also a volunteer, about doing more than just these standard tours and doing this program and doing this special event, she was basically like, if you want to invest the time in that, here's $200 from Petty Cash, stretch it out, I trust you. And so I got to just create my own exhibits and my own events. How exciting. And it was incredible because then by the time I graduated from college, I had that experience on my resume, which I needed because I didn't go to a fancy school. I didn't have any connections, right? So the museum field is tragically difficult to get into. So if I was going to make it, I was going to have to do it entirely on my own. Right. So that I credit the Doctor's House Victorian Museum with launching my career Wow. in that sense. That's a rare opportunity and just a great story to let people know that even when you think you can't get in, there's always a way in to getting to your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. It was magical. So yes, after the page, I ended up at Kids Base once I got back from D.C. Mm-hmm. So. How long were you in D.C.? Five years. And what prompted you to go over there? At the time, I was heartbroken and just kind of couldn't see my way through that fog and so I just thought I needed a change of scenery. In retrospect, that was a very small percentage of the impetus. I was 28, I had lived in LA my entire life, I had just one identity and it was time for me to burst out of the bud. I realize that now, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the heartbreak was the impetus. But it was time. It was time for me to just go see the world and leave home. I went there thinking, well, with all my experience, the Smithsonian's going to be really excited to hire me. But it doesn't work that way in D.C. D.C.'s elitist. It's wonderful in a lot of ways. But in L.A., having a degree from Cal State Northridge has opened loads of doors for me. Because here, that means something. First of all, people know of that university. Going to a state school, and specifically Cal State Northridge, means you were dedicated. You probably paid for it yourself and put yourself through college. You were probably working while you were doing it. And you were pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So it stands for hard work and dedication to, you know, local universities. And good work ethic. And good work ethic. And my CEO at Kidspace got his master's there. But it's, it's spoken volumes about me in L.A., but in D.C., 
they wanted Princeton, they wanted Harvard, they wanted all of these things. And um, I didn't have any of that. Nobody knew what the Tar Pits was. Nobody knew what the Doctor's House Victorian Museum was. I didn't have any fancy connections. There were loads of kids who were working for the Smithsonian doing unpaid internships while mom and dad floated their rent. So um, I applied over and over and over and over and over and over again to different museums. And just, I would get a few interviews here and there, but never any bites. And then finally, my last year there, I was offered a secretary position at the Smithsonian Castle, which wasn't even a museum. It was just the admin headquarters. And I turned it down. And shortly thereafter, I moved home. And within six months, I had a management position at a museum. Isn't that amazing? The different markets, the different environments, mm-hmm. different locations, and just the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, LA, the, LA is known to be snooty as well. But people are wrong. I find LA to be incredibly down to earth, and I don't find it to be status driven. I don't find it to be about who you know. Maybe I just don't live and work and play in those circles, but I'm 44. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been around the city. Right. So. I find it to be remarkably down to earth. And I think a lot of the time when people criticize it, it's people who haven't lived other places and gotten that perspective. Yeah, I think it's very down to earth too, you know. There are pockets where it's a little more elitist, but as a whole, it is a very embracing place. It's so diverse. Um, What was the draw to go specifically to DC rather than going somewhere else? I had a cousin on the outskirts of D.C. in Northern Virginia that had a basement and a bed that I could utilize (laughs) until I got on my feet. And uh, New York and Boston did not have those options. I wanted to leave the country. I looked into going to South America. But visa issues, and I had $600 to my name, and that would have been really risky, Mm -hmm. right? So I thought, well, the East Coast is the next closest thing to a foreign country. And I was right. And, you know, being able to crash in my cousin's basement for three months until I got acclimated was necessary. So that's why DC, it could have been anywhere. I wanted to go to New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the options weren't there. How is acclimating to the weather over there compared to here? I mean, it's so much cold. I just always think of the cold. I actually liked the cold Uh at first because it was enchanting to me right it's different snow is beautiful dc didn't get enough snow for my liking but i'm romantic right and i have this victorian obsession so i remember my first winter there like being able to wear a proper pea coat and boots and the wind picking up as leaves were falling and i was walking down a cobblestone street i just felt like my heart was going to explode it was so magical um i remember my first snowfall looking out my window and seeing it The summer was abysmal. The summer was so much worse than the winter in D.C. The humidity. The humidity. I just felt like I was going to die every single summer. And I'll never forget, like, (laughs) in winter, like, you know, we just stayed indoors and we dealt with it. But it was charming because we had a fireplace and all of this. But then summer came and I realized, oh, my God, I'm living somewhere where for the majority of the year, I cannot just sit outside comfortably. And coming from L.A., blew my mind because I thought it was just going to be winter which blew my mind enough you know right it was all year long 
And wow. so for two weeks in the autumn and two weeks in the spring. So I just kind of resigned myself to being unattractive for like three months out of the year. Yeah, your summer. face melts off, right? Your face melts <laughs> you off. Me? My hair. Just, <laughs> oh, yeah, like, the I look electrocuted every single day. <laughs> I sweat a lot. I was just soaked in sweat. <laughs> It was disgusting. Oh, that's what happened when I went to Europe. First of all, Austria and Germany with the rain. Like, it just, it drizzled either, you know, for half of the day, or it would pour for like two hours and then be humid the rest of the day. And I just had this big Afro thing going. (laughs) Every single day I was having this bad hair day. And Italy, we were there in July, and you would take a shower and dry off. You know, soaking wet, right out of the shower, you dry off. Five minutes later, you were soaking wet again Mm -hmm. with sweat. And it was like, what's the point? Yeah. In D.C., it was like you would step outside and drink the air. (laughs) It, It was terribly unpleasant. And, you know, people, obviously there's a lot that contributes to social culture, but I honestly think a huge part of why people are more laid back on the West Coast than the East Coast is because they're fucking uncomfortable on the East Coast (laughs) all the time. You're uncomfortable in the winter. You're uncomfortable in the summer. I started getting grouchy because I was so physically uncomfortable all the time. Oh, my gosh. You know? We're comfortable. It like it just feels good to walk outside here. Right. It makes a big difference. Like you don't have to plan and prepare and like gear up just to walk next door. Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And, you know, we are so charmed by thunderstorms and and Uh, all of these things that happen on the East Coast regularly that people take for granted. And we just had that great, beautiful thunderstorm. And we loved it. It was so amazing. And, you know, Sophie and I were sitting in the house and she's like, is that rain? And I'm like, is that? No, it can't be. Those are the garbage trucks outside. Something, you know. Um, We opened the door and it was pouring. And then you start hearing the thunder rumbling and lightning bolts coming out of the sky. And it's a full-on monsoon. And it's like, oh, my God, this is glorious. Like, pause the world. We have to enjoy this. Yeah. You know. But not so much. I mean, I think a lot of people did enjoy it when it would happen in D.C., but not as much as I did. <laughs> I, I, I remember my friend Bridget and I, there's a picture of us. A bunch of us had gone to a, an amusement park, and all the rides got shut down because the thunderstorm was moving through. And she and I just loved it so much. And she grew up in Queens. And so everyone else was running to like take shelter as the hail started coming down, and two of us just went running out from the shelter. <laughs> And there's this picture of us just like smiling like idiots in this hail with this big, burly, tough guy running like aggressively to safety behind us. That's so funny. I think I've seen that picture. I'm sure you have. Yeah, you guys are soaking wet with huge smiles on your faces and just reveling in in it. Yeah. Looking like some photo out of Woodstock or something. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's awesome. Did you get to see all of like the monuments and everything that everybody goes to dc on vacation for i feel like i saw more at the east coast at large than most people who've grown up on the east coast because i because you like to travel you're adventurous you're inquisitive you're curious and it's so beautiful like i literally mapped out every covered bridge that i could drive to oh my god that's been one of my dreams it's incredible right but then people just like 
drive past them. Like, so no, I, whenever I could, whenever I could afford to, whenever I had the time to, I would rent a car and I would just drive to a new place. It might be Manassas because there's a bridge there, or it might be Savannah, Georgia, right? Because it's Savannah, Georgia. So I, I feel very satisfied by my five years there. I, I saw, I saw so much. I just, it was very gluttonous with all of that in the best sense of the word. Mm-hmm. I still have a box just full of every map and every little flyer for every cool historical attraction that I collected during those five years. It was incredible. East Coast is an incredible place. Yeah, yeah. Well, the history there. Mm-hmm. You don't have that depth of history here on the West Coast that you're going to find over there. Just all of the historical happenings, the people that have gone through there. But you're also not shackled by historic mindsets here the way you are there. Like even with progressive people out there, there's this veneer of more kind of old fashioned traditional mindsets and values. And I think it's because you're literally in that terrarium of history, you know? That so, makes sense. I could yeah. see that. I, there's a different kind of sensibility, a different kind of East Coast confidence that I see in my friends who are from the East Coast mm-hmm. or people that I talk to who, I, it's it's not relaxed. It's not definitely not surfer culture, especially, you know, having grown up so close to the beaches. I grew up in the South Bay and school would be over and I'd hop in the car with all of my friends mm-hmm. and we'd go body surfing or bodyboarding or whatever at the beach and swim with the dolphins that would come through. And it does give you being around the waves and the warmth and that kind of company and just being able to play in the the water it just does give you kind of this meditative super relaxed Mm -hmm. way of life and i could see where if you're constantly having to bundle up or you know make these plans like you said to go next door what what am i going to wear or you know am i going to melt when i step outside Mm -hmm and being immersed in that kind of history where it would give you a completely different perspective of the world. And there's there's just a lot of focus on status, and I know people say that about LA, but I didn't really know anything about DC when I moved there. I just chose it, right, because it was convenient. So I'll, I'll never forget, like, the first few weeks that I was making friends and, like, going out to happy hours and stuff... I didn't realize it was a thing that the first thing every everyone was going to say is, what do you do? Like, I didn't, I didn't know DC well enough, so it, it was so strange to me. And so I was still looking for work, so I basically would tell people, well, I'm temping right now, or... And people were obviously turned off by it. Not everyone, of course. I made wonderful friends there. But I remember when I would tell people, well, I left my career and my boyfriend and my apartment and sold my car and moved out here for an adventure. Like, they were very confused by that. (laughs) Right. Because no one goes to D.C. for a new adventure. Exactly. People go there for work. So You're right. It was just strange to me because in L.A., I don't think anyone had ever asked me what I do for a living. It would come up in conversation naturally, (laughs) but it was not the social opener. I felt like in LA, social openers would be like, so what do you like to do for fun? You know? Right. Like what interests you? That's a come on somewhere else. (laughs) Right. But here it's like when you meet people out and about, that's, that's what they're more interested in. How's your day going? What? So the translation for me is what, what brings you joy? What do you like to do, right? So what brings you joy? 
as opposed to what's your work. Yeah. So that was strange. How do you make your money? Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a direct line to status, to financial stability. Mm-hmm. And also just, it's a, DC is a very polarized place, right? So the, the things that you can theoretically infer from someone just by gauging their profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. had a great time, but I'm happy to be back in LA. Yeah, yeah. LA rocks. LA rocks. <laughs> and we have so many amazing places. Before we get off that subject, I wanted to ask um, before we travel away from DC, somebody were going to DC and they asked you, I'm going to be there for a week. What should I see? What would you tell them? Well, that's, that's so hard. That's so hard because there's so many pockets of magic, right? So if they went there in the summertime, I would tell them to go down to the National Mall, like at sunset, with a picnic, and watch the sunset behind the Washington Monument and wait for the fireflies to show up. I mean, that's magical, mm-hmm. right? And there's a warm, balmy breeze once the sun goes down. Or I would tell them to go to Meridian Hill Park for the drum circle on Sundays because it's the one little like bohemian haven in the city where you have people hula hooping. And when I say a drum circle, it's not a bunch of hippies like down in Venice Beach. It is the North African community. It is the Lebanese community. And they're just all jamming there. And it's it's the dreamers and the seekers escaping the K Street culture to go and enjoy a little hedonism for an afternoon, you know? But there's everything. I would I would tell them to walk down Swan Street just because Swan Street is so beautiful. It's cobblestones and turrets and little Victorian homes. And yeah, I would tell them to just get like a hot chocolate and walk down Swan Street. There's there's so much. It's in it's in it's not the White House, you know? It's all of those little things. Yeah. And DC is a, a visually stunning city. People don't realize it, but mm-hmm. it looks like something out of a fairy tale. It looks like a Hansel and Gretel book. It's beautiful. Wow. So. Yeah. Sophie's books. been there. I haven't been there. You should go. I should I definitely go. For you. Oh, nice. Maybe we can go together. That would be fun. Okay. Yeah. So you had this magical five-year experience and then came back and went over to Kids Space. Mm-hmm. He could not get a job at all in the museum industry after years of being in it and having all of this knowledge in D.C. at all. And you come back and within six months, six months, you have a job. Yeah. An amazing job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was the education manager at Kidspace. So my, I wore a lot of different hats, a lot of different hats at Kidspace. But ultimately, it was working with a team of content specialists designing public programs. So professional whimsy maker. Professional whimsy maker. I know you had some like really cool bug-oriented summer camps. You did a lot of summer camps, right? We did a lot of summer camps. We did weekend festivals and things like that. But yes, the highlight of my career at Kidspace, which lasted five years, I... Towards the end, I just had the most amazing team of content specialists. There were six of us. And they were so dynamic and open to cross-cutting concepts and new ideas and my kind of of outside-of-the-box way of approaching education. So it was my last year there, I think, and I got a text thread going between me and my six specialists. I told them, you know, I have our five weeks of summer camp themes planned, but I can't think of a sixth one. It's got to be dynamic. 
So, you know, people were texting back, well, outer space camp or botany camp or this or that. And I was like, no, it's got to be, it's got to be dynamic. So we're going back and forth. And then finally somebody says, what about bug camp? And I was like, no, everyone does bug camp. It's boring. <laughs> and then we started getting punchy. And one girl said, what about band camp? Yeah, this one time at band camp. So then the American pie joke started to fly and then somebody said, yeah, this one time at bug band camp. And then it's like, yeah, how hysterical would that be? And it was a joke. Like, instead of band camp or bug camp, it's bug band camp where all the bugs come to band camp. And I just kind of, like, stayed quiet and let all the jokes start to fly. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. We're going to do bug band camp. So then I told them, and I was like, okay, we're, we're going to do that. And they were like, no, we were kidding. And I'm like, oh, no, this is, we're going to do this. This is happening, people. So <laughs> I assigned that particular camp to Samantha Mendoza, who was my education specialist. And it was just, to this day, the most brilliant camp that I've ever been involved with. So basically, she designed it so that each day of the week covered a different decade of music and music culture and a different variety of bugs, right? So I think for like that the Tuesday that was 60s or 70s themed, um, it was all about bioluminescent bugs because psychedelics, right? Oh my gosh. And then on 80s day, it was all about like big hair and bright colors. So it was like caterpillars with spikes and all of this kind of stuff. And every day, like we would introduce the kids to music from that decade and let them build instruments of some sort. And then we'd have a jam session and we'd let them decorate themselves to look like a fusion of bugs from that decade. I mean, it was just, it was wacky as hell. How fun. crazy educational completely, at the same time. Yeah, completely out of the box, completely counterintuitive to yeah. what anybody would expect, like bands and bugs. But it, it actually was a, like, it complemented so beautifully, yeah. you know? And the kids learned a lot, and we finished by doing a music video with a green screen with giant bugs on the back of it. That's so cool. It was amazing. Yeah. It was a good time. That is so cool. Yeah. So you were there for five years Mm -hmm. and just did a variety of everything. Mm -hmm. I remember going to that museum, and there is a big giant section of the museum that's dedicated to bugs and big leaves where caterpillars have eaten some of the leaves Mm -hmm. and I just I remember that and it's very tactile visual just a very immersive museum it's it's probably one of my favorite kids museums Mm -hmm. around I think one other really epic memory was we used to once a year have rubber ducky races down the stream (laughs) that's in the garden and it was a legitimate competition the kids would decorate them and then race them down and my last year there we decided to add music we had timed races Every time a race would go, we'd blast Rise of the Valkyries, <laughs> which was totally lost on the kids, of course, but it entertained the living hell out of us. Right. You know? <laughs> it was fun. How much fun. Oh, my God. That's funny. Um, how do you connect with kids? What are um, some of the things that you find that maybe other adults could tap into to connect better with kids? It seems like there's such a big space, you know, we get, we were talking earlier about when we were kids and just kind of finding yourself underneath a tree or a bush or something, or, you know, like some little shady area where the ground is moist and it's all of your friends and you're all talking about 
everything and nobody's judging anybody and you're just you're just in the moment and reveling and the beauty of friends and you know like the whole world is right at that moment and just just being just being and then we transition somehow through our teenage years i don't know if it's a hormonal thing that comes in that cuts things off i don't know if it's life events expectations or you know yeah trauma or you know this high value that society has on status and so if you're spending time indulging in those childhood idyllic moments and you know being more mindful and being more present and in the moment you're not chasing status you know because you really have a choice you can do this or you can do that But I think all the experts have come more and more closely to let us know that multitasking is a myth. It might Mm -hmm. seem like you're doing 20 things at once, but you're only thinking about one thing at a time. And you might be able to shuffle through all of them pretty quickly and sequentially, but you're actually only doing one task at a time. And really, it translates to this realization that you have to make choices. You can't spend time being childlike and finding status. And so maybe, although you've found yourself in this really wonderful niche where you are immersed in childlike experiences all the time and doing exactly what you love doing, working in a museum, but I think a lot of people choose one or the other and they tend to gravitate away from that. Well, I don't think that people need to find that childlike fulfillment in work. You know, I'm just lucky that I get paid to do it. But when I, I mean, temping and being a secretary for five years in D.C. was absolutely soul-draining for me. So I just made sure to chase it even more after 5 p.m. every day, right? You can still choose to be an investment banker for your profession, and it doesn't mean that you can't chase your childlike wonder, but I think it's, I think that people lose that childlike wonder, but maybe a better way of saying it is that they're robbed of it, right? Life life robs us of it a lot. I just, again, I'm lucky, I'm very lucky Mm -hmm. that somehow I retained it. I think you asked what's a way that people can connect with children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think for me, it's easy because I'm very childlike. And so, like I was mentioning earlier, sometimes when I'm around the kids that I work with, I feel more like I'm around my peers than when I'm around my adult coworkers because they're just focused on joy and they're actively thinking about how can I be kind and this doesn't feel good and that's interesting. And I think if people can just tap into that primitive side of themselves, and I don't say primitive in a bad way, I think that then you open up a door to be able to connect with kids. Not everyone wants to or has a need to connect with children. Right. But, you know, there was a meme that was going around a few months ago about like when you're a grown up, no one asks you what your favorite dinosaur is anymore. You know, I actually do have a few favorites. That's the problem. That's funny. Nobody's asked me, but I love Elasmosaurus and <laughs> and Brontosaurus and um, oh, my gosh, I used to know them all because Cameron having a boy, you know, he knew every single dinosaur name. And there were some that were my favorites. There's the one that's got the spiky collar. 
mm-hmm. kind of stocky mm-hmm. with a horn. Uh-huh. I forget what that's called. I don't called. know. I, people always think I'm going to know about dinosaurs, yeah. but I don't. I don't. Do you have a favorite dinosaur? I love pterodactyls. I do. It's the one that's gone through name transitions the past few years. I think it was a Brachiosaurus at one point. Okay. They the were the vegetarians that we would yep. see in the water with the long necks. It sneezes on the girl in Jurassic Park. Yes. And in retrospect, I, that was my favorite dinosaur. I didn't like dinosaurs growing up. Really? Yeah, I didn't. And I remember feeling kind of alienated from my peers because of it, though I just kind of filed it away. But only this year did I realize why I didn't like dinosaurs. I associated them with violence and death. Mm. They were constantly killing each other. They had these sharp teeth. They were predators, or at least, you know, that's what's glorified. And that was not appealing to me. Yeah, that's what's presented. Still does. Yeah. So I'm still not enchanted by dinosaurs. I think because of Cameron, I, you know, being a mom of a boy after growing up in a home with, you know, I have a sister, so girls, everything was girly, girly, girly. And then I have this like, ooh, wait, trucks. I I don't know, what do you Uh like? You know, um, it was, it's a journey. It was such an educational journey. And I got big into dinosaurs, mostly because he loved them so much. So that was the reason. But I'm trying to think if I like them. I think I associated them with aggression Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Definitely associated them with aggression. Aggression, I was very sensitive to as a child. And Mm -hmm. people, I mean, my mom will tell you a story of how bitterly I cried even watching cartoons if I saw violence god I remember when Frosty the snowman melted in the greenhouse and I totally lost my shit as a (laughs) six-year-old you know so I was just sensitive to all of that yeah one of the things that we just piloted at the Arboretum so for so long when parents have picked their kids up from our summer camp program they'll see what they did that day and they'll say oh my God, this looks like so much fun. I want to come to this camp, right? Or I'll post things that we were doing, obviously not with the kids' faces, but I'll post them and people will say, oh my God, like I want to come to your camp. So for so long, I had talked to people about doing summer camp for adults. So we finally decided to go for it. And I'm lucky enough to have a CEO who's open to my wild ideas like that. So we planned three for the summer, one for June, one for July, one for August. June, body botany, so like the sex life of plants. July, Jurassic camp, so dinosaur themed, because no one asks adults what their favorite dinosaur is anymore. I should attend. And then um, August, the magic garden, so kind of the folklore surrounding nature. We sent out an e-blast and all three sold out overnight. So what does oh that tell Oh my gosh. You? Yes. People want to go to summer camps. They People want to be a child. People want to connect to that side of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They want to. They just don't have the opportunity to because the adult world doesn't provide enough of those experiences. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. It's like most people are just getting up in the morning, brushing their teeth, grabbing coffee, going to work, sitting at a desk for eight hours. That's the world we live in. But, you know, then you're mentally drained at the end of the day. Come home, you sit in front of the TV, rinse, repeat. Which is why it's a privilege to get paid to create an experience like that. Yeah. I think creating is really 
soul validating, you know, I mean, it just really validates the human experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why I work in film, why I write stories, why I produce podcasts and constantly like, how can I connect? It's a way of staying connected with the world in a very tactile, mental, physical way, Mm -hmm. you know, just validating that your existence matters and that there are other people around you that matter. And again, it's it's primitive, right? Mm-hmm. Everything on earth is creating something. Even if it's creating destruction, like we're everything is creating something, right? right? It's why we're here. Yeah. So those are such cool summer camps. You saw me grab my phone to start scrolling through here because I wanted to find the e-invite that you sent out on those summer camps. And I had actually asked Sophie, hey, do you want to do one of these? And unfortunately, I think she was busy on a day that I wasn't. And then we were both busy on the other ones. Part of the joy of summer camp is that you get to make new friends. So you don't have to come with a friend. That's true. That's true. But they've sold out. So are you going to I know the person in charge of them, so you should. Oh, sorry. I can can go. (laughs) She may be able to open up a space. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I would love to do one of those. I love the idea that you do make new friends there. How big are the adult ones? Uh, Originally, we have them at 20, but we've had so many people call wanting to get in that we opened it up to 24. So we can have everyone three feet apart indoors at 24. Yeah, you have to maintain those COVID guidelines right now, don't you? Um, Yeah, the world's such a different place. But still, despite it, we can still connect. Yeah. We've talked so much about kids and museums, and I know that's not where you spend all of your time. You seem to be able to put together like just these fun, whimsical gatherings that, you know, you just seem to snap your finger and you gather a diverse group of friends together who often show up costumed and bearing all kinds of delicious additions for the table. Most people I know spend months just trying to be able to do one event at their home but you seem to be able to put them together. How do you get your inspiration for these? (laughs) I mean, I'm constantly joy seeking, right? I need a lot of stimulation. So I live, I mean, I feel inspired all the time. If I could, I would be doing it every weekend, but I can't. So it's, it's not a matter of finding inspiration for it. I mean, again, if I keep saying this, I'm gonna sound like I'm a negative person, but I'm not. The world is a really difficult place. So there's that Dylan Thomas quote about raging against the dying of the light. I'm very in touch with how much pain there is in the world. I'm a deeply sensitive person. If I didn't have a stronger constitution, I would very much slip down into a dark hole and stay there for my whole life. I'm lucky, I'm pretty balanced. But I see the shadows all the time. So the shadows are my inspiration to a large extent, right? Like, to ward them yeah, off. Yeah, it's like you're fighting against, it's, it's almost like getting a bunch of beautiful people together to drink too much wine and sing songs together in fairy wings. It's almost like our collective way of giving a giant middle finger to the darkness, mm-hmm. you know? Almost like, I mean, there there's like ancient pagan magical practices that are kind of based around that concept. And obviously that's not where I'm coming from, but you understand why those magical practices developed because people thought like I could ward this off with this talisman or with 
So the parties With a are, celebration. Yeah, the parties are almost, again, primitive in that way, you know. I'm not thinking that intensely every time I throw together a party. Right. But at its roots, I think it's everything could be over tomorrow. So let's... Let's celebrate let's tonight. Celebrate, you know? Yeah. Let's celebrate the good things in life. You know, it's really interesting because I think you do have to have a very healthy awareness of those shadows. Like I said, my saying that the one thing in life that is guaranteed is that it's going to be tough, regardless of how well you manage to navigate it. And I think that it's those little sparks of light, those glittering moments, those moments when you do feel joyous and happy that keep you going, that encourage you to get to the next moment like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that life is just such deep drudgery all the time, no. but there is a heaviness to it, especially when we're living in a world where the news cycle is what it is mm-hmm. now, where you're constantly hearing about things going on and and then things just come out of the blue to attack you. And you're just like, whoa, you know, like last night, this is this is funny. I spent the whole day working really hard on a project and I was just finishing it up. And all of a sudden I hear this helicopter and I'm like, wow, you know, that's really low. And we're in Los Angeles. The mm-hmm. helicopters are ubiquitous. You can't go anywhere without having them buzzing around. But this was down so low that my window started rattling and my whole house is vibrating. And it starts doing these very tight, low circles right on top of my house. I start getting tired texts. Is everything okay at your place? You know, what's going on? We're, you know, down the street and it looks like the helicopter's right on top of your house. Because it's dark, you can't really see out into the darkness. And you live in this world where it can very easily become arduous. And then you've got a helicopter down low, you know, and I find out that somebody had called the police department and reported somebody and it was really much ado about nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when you're living in a world where you kind of feel out of control sometimes. Yeah, to say nothing of the world inside of you. Like death, heartbreak, loss, or even just like some days I will I will feel the weight of what I know is probably decades worth of different things. And I'm just particularly vulnerable that day. And I don't even really know why I'm feeling down. But I mean, there's that right. too, right? And like, just to clarify, it's not... I'm not advocating for toxic positivity. Like, I don't believe in that. Like, these t-shirts that say good vibes only, like, I think that's that's really toxic. I value sadness. That's where all the songs I've written have come from. The poetry, I mean, so much of the beautiful art in the world, like, the sadness matters. We have to honor the sadness. And it doesn't mean that everything should be a party all the time and you should just like push away that sad feeling with a costume party. Jenny and I used to call it the sunshine cult. Like I don't advocate for that Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. You know, feeling the feelings matters. It does. You need the balance, but you also need that purposeful sense of revelry and just validating. I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but what an incredible thing to be alive. Like one of my closest friends died three years ago. Like she's gone. Like whenever people don't want to celebrate birthdays, I'm just like, oh my God, you made it. Like you get to be alive another year. You just, you get to be alive. You have another chance to eat your favorite foods and 
have sex and go to the beach. Like, you're alive. We're here. Like, I know it sounds cheesy, but that's that's something to celebrate, too. It is. So. It is. It doesn't have to be. There doesn't have to be a holiday. We're alive. And if we're lucky, we love people. That We have people that we get to love. Like, all of that stuff is worthy of a celebration, too. You know? But not toxic positivity. Yeah, I think we need to work through those issues that are making us sad, not push them away, which is the Sunshine Club. Yeah. Yeah. It, sure. it doesn't leave any room for you to, to learn from those less validated feelings in society. Yeah. We're just so, always have to be happy. And I think that creates a lot of negative pressures. My favorite exhibit we ever did at the Doctor's House Victorian Museum, which was not my exhibit, it was curated by the volunteer curator, but it was a death and mourning exhibit. And I was 19 years old when we were doing it, but it, even at 19 years old, like it spoke to me so deeply. Victorians had wild customs surrounding death and mourning that today like we would be so freaked out by and we would see it as macabre and dark and creepy and morbid but they didn't see it as those things because death was such a part of their reality you know so many children never made it past toddlerhood so they had to acknowledge it right they didn't have the luxury of toxic positivity and so yes they indulged it which you know i didn't live 100 years ago so I don't know how healthy that was or wasn't but the habits that we would consider unhealthy today because it would seem too indulgent were just for them therapeutic it was a way of honoring what had happened and honoring the the tragedy of what had happened you know like post-mortem photography like Victorians when when somebody would die they would dress them obviously and lay them out in the homes chances are you didn't have a photo album full of pictures of these people right so they would take pictures of them sitting up with a book in their hand babies there's there's loads of postmortem photography of babies and we had a collection of those photo albums out and we would let people know at the end of the tour you're welcome to look at these if you want to most people didn't want to look at them because they found them very creepy i thought they were beautiful because loss is probably the one thing that irreputably connects all of us right so this is a language that everybody can share everybody has or will lose somebody so to me death and mourning customs have always fascinated me i remember in college learning about the yanomamo indians and how when somebody died they would burn their corpse and then take the charred bones and grind them up and brew it into a tea and then pass the cup around and everyone in the tribe would take a sip of the tea and everyone in my class was horrified by this and I thought it was exquisite, you know? And it was a way of keeping that person with them. Yeah, letting that person absorb into their body, becoming one, the spirit. Yeah, so I had no idea how I went off in it. There's so many different customs like that. Well, because we were talking about toxic positivity and and that sort of thing. You know, it was really interesting. I was reading a story about uh, Victorian times. A young girl passed away, maybe 10, 12. And her mother had her grave built with a room at the head of the coffin. Mm -hmm. There's a window there and stairs that go down because this girl was deathly afraid of thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. And so when there was a thunderstorm, the mom would go down there and sit with her daughter and talk to her. Mm -hmm. 
And those are, you know, you think, my God, that's morbid. But those were customs of yore, and they were quite normalized because death was such a big part of that time period. You know, they didn't have the medicine that we have today. Hair jewelry. Yes. Like, we had a collection of hair jewelry in that museum, and whenever I would show it to people, they would literally shiver. They thought it was so gross. First of all, the, the fact that we are so freaked out by hair, <laughs> like, oh, there's a hair in my food. Oh, there's a hair in the back. It's hair. That's it, you know? But the idea of keeping the hair of a dead person and turning it into jewelry that you would wear just blew people's minds. I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it just talks to, you know, that connection, the yeah. depth of that connection. And I have given lockets of my hair a few times. When my grandmother died, I buried her with a piece of my hair. When the cat love of my life died, I buried him with a piece of my hair. Um, When the man love of my life had a birthday, I made him like a smudge stick with different herbs and plants and I wove a locket of my hair into it too. It's beautiful, it's a Mm -hmm. piece of yourself, literally. It's amazing. Things you don't think about unless you're looking at things that other cultures do and understanding the depth of why something occurs rather than, you know, shrinking away from it. See, those are the things that you get from somebody who works at a museum (laughs) or has worked at museums that the average person doesn't necessarily connect to. You know, I was just a couple of days ago at um, the California Science Center to go see the Angkor exhibit that is there, which is phenomenal and it's spectacular. And I had the good fortune of talking to one of the docents and we talked each other's ears off about the different exhibits that were there. And, you know, he'd say something and then I'd go, oh, that reminds me of such and such and he'd go oh yeah you know and then he'd get into a subject about that and then I'd go oh I read this other thing and he's like yeah you know so we talked for a really long time and talking about you know specifically there the people of Angkor which had abandoned the whole empire one day they just up and left but talking about their belief systems and the way that they looked at the world and they were a bigger civilization than so many others that are out there that have ceased to exist and it's like how were they able to build that and what was their perspective and what were the things that they were doing right at that time and it's things that you wouldn't think of now because we live in such a built-up civilization yeah you know i mean it's pretty amazing Um, As someone who has such a deep curiosity of the world and connection to human beings, you've also traveled extensively, which we alluded to earlier with you being in D.C. for five years. And you recently returned from a trip to Costa Rica. Prior to COVID, there was Mexico City, Vietnam, Paris, just to name a few. You seek to learn more about the culture and connect with people. And I guess that comes back to your anthropology background. But what's made the most lasting impression? impression on you uh, anywhere that you've traveled Hmm. (laughs) again that's hard um I think probably the first thing that comes to mind is when I was in Vietnam I um broke off by myself and went to the north to the Sapa Mountains that border China and their Hmong villages in these really really steep mountains and they have a lot of rice paddies on the mountains and indigo farms and you can't go hike through those villages on your own. You have to go with a guide. So I booked a guide through something called Sapa Sisters. It was the only Hmong-owned, women-owned 
trekking company in the Sapa Mountains because wow. most of them are owned by Vietnamese business people or some Chinese. But the Hmong in that region are kind of considered second-class citizens. So they're still living in tribal societies and the Vietnamese population are the ones in the city. And so the Vietnamese population, they're the ones that can create the businesses to take tourists through these mountains. So the Sapa sisters, it's Hmong-owned, but also all of their guides are women, the owners are women, and it's intended to give Hmong women an opportunity to make their own living so that they don't have to rely on their husbands. Because my understanding is that they're still expected to be wives and mothers. And so I was paired up with a guide. She was very charming don't remember her name at the moment Um, but she was a very progressive young woman and as she was walking me through all of these steep mountains we'd be walking for a while and then we'd come across other tourists that were there with guides from her tribe and then we'd be walking for a while and then we'd come across other tourists that were there from guides from other tribes and so every time we would pass by somebody she would explain how to tell who was from one tribe and who was from another because I couldn't tell the difference. They were all in very colorful traditional outfits that were not for tourist benefits. That's how they dress. And so she would tell us yes in my tribe this is our color scheme right? In their tribe the women wear pants. She would talk about how she was considered a real problem in her community because she didn't want to get married and she didn't want to have a child. She wanted to go to school. She wanted to have her own life and it was a disgrace and then she just casually goes into how her husband kidnapped her not that she was oh my god but how she was bridenapped and I was like wait wait let's let's back up as we're just like walking through the Hmong mountains being followed by pigs and wild animals in a rainstorm covered in mud right and she's just like yeah I mean that's just a lot of the time that's how it happens here, you're just like, you're kidnapped and then you become someone's bride. And I'm like, I've read about this. I I learned about this in school, but this is still happening. She was like, yeah. So she told me how it happened to her and it was somebody from a neighboring tribe. But it was educational and humbling for me because I was horrified. But she was just like, Brooke, that's just how people get married here. And she was like, it's not like I was locked up and tortured or anything like that. Like, they wanted me. Like, the family wanted me. His parents wanted me, you know? And I was like, did your family, like, send out a search party? And she's like, what are you talking about? They were happy that this happened. And so that just, like, I wasn't reading about this in a book, you know? I was living it as I was walking through mud. And it was just, it was intense, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I think, I think she ended up putting up enough of a fight that it didn't happen. Or maybe that, that guy was from her tribe and she ended up marrying a man that she wanted to for love from a different tribe and having a baby with him. It was like, again, I had stepped through a portal to this other world and just having my bias challenged according to my Western perspective of what's right and wrong, right? Right. That was incredible. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to travel, to get a perspective of the world that is not Westernized. Um, We're like, oh my God, that's so terrible. I mean, like you heard me gasp when you said that she was bridenapped. Holy cow. Right. What a horrible thing for us to have something like that happen to us or happen to somebody that we really love. But that is cultural over there. That's not something to be horrified by. by. 
so part of this two-day adventure was you would do homestays, right? So midday, we would stop into somebody's home that knew we were coming. They prepared a meal for us and other travelers. So there was a guide from her tribe that showed up with two other travelers, one woman from New York and one from Boston, all of us about the same age. And so I brought up this concept and they were like, yeah, we've been wondering about that too. So then their guide started talking about it and she was like, oh yeah. And she just like joyfully tells the story about when she was kidnapped by her husband. (laughs) And we're like, what the hell? But she wasn't a rebel about it. She was like, yeah, I had always thought he was kind of cute. So I was kind of excited when he did it. And we're just like, son of a bitch. Like, this is, this is unreal. But she was just giggling about it, you know? Customs. Customs are so different in so many different places. So that's, I mean, I don't know that that's my most memorable, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. And you just came back from Costa Rica. I know you did like some really fun stuff over there. You went to a chocolate farm Mm -hmm. and got to roast it, grind it, Mm -hmm. turn it into something drinkable. Mm -hmm. How was that? 107 degree weather over an open fire. (laughs) Uh, It almost killed me, but I was determined. (laughs) That's crazy because we went to Costa Rica shortly before you Mm -hmm. and we got there just about at the same time as a tropical storm Mm -hmm. came through from the Caribbean and it dumped water on us every single day and it just you know you just woke up in the morning and it was like all right well if I want to see anything I gotta be wet and if I'm not willing to be wet today then I'm just gonna be staying indoors so we just went out got wet every single day and no one was carrying umbrellas right they're just walking around in the rain we all just walked around in the rain we all got wet um Sophie and I did have raincoats and you know plastic raincoats with hoodies but But yeah, there weren't any umbrellas and it was wonderful. I mean, it was just one of the adventures of our lifetime. I mean, every single time that I tell somebody about what I do on vacation, almost invariably they go, I'm never going on vacation with you. You (laughs) Right? Right? Because we're such adventurers. But, um, you know, we're here to live. And I feel like that's what you have to do, you know. And where else are you going to get stories like that? You're not going to get it in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. You know, that's amazing. I remember when I lived in Redondo Beach, we had some neighbors that moved in across the street from us. And they were Indian. So they had people coming in with incense and bells and dressed in their saris and very nice, nice suits that the men were wearing. Just beautiful, very colorful. And eventually we got to know them and their marriage was arranged. And I'm just like, I could not imagine. And they have one of the strongest marriages. And uh, Preet and Tage is the couple's name. And they would tell us the funniest stories of getting to know each other because Tage grew up like on a cattle farm in Ohio. And she... I believe, I might be completely wrong, but I believe that she lived in India until she got married. And then it was just kind of like, you know, she was like, I don't know if I like this guy. And um, just the awkwardness, all of that awkwardness, Mm -hmm. you know, but they knew that this was like their destiny. This is what they did Mm -hmm. in their culture. And it's just blossomed into just a, you know, a really wonderful relationship for them. Mm -hmm. But it's so different from anything that we would be okay with. Mm -hmm. You know, and yet not that far removed, my grandmother's marriage was arranged. Was it my maternal grandmother's? Wow, mm-hmm. she was 17. 
and he was older than her. This was in Rochester, New York, but they were all Italian immigrants. So it was like an Italian village. It was like being in Italy. She was scared. She was sad. But he died when she was 29, and she mourned him till the day she died at 88 years Wow. Old. Did she remarry? She did. Yeah. Yeah, in her 50s. Wow. Mm-hmm. What an amazing life. Mm-hmm. So interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So she ended up falling in love with him after all. I mean, I, or just loving him. I don't know. We didn't have those conversations. Yeah. You know, she died when I was 23, when we were just starting to have those conversations. So she either fell in love with him or just grew to love him because he was her husband and the father of her children. He was a good man, you know? Yeah. So. Um, just going back to the chocolate. <laughs> I know <laughs> chocolate is so yeah. good. Um, I know you've been to like all of these countries and you're also vegetarian. Has it been difficult to find vegetarian food when you go abroad or has it been harder to find vegetarian food here in the States? Abroad. I mean, I, I aim for vegan, but I call myself vegish because particularly while I travel, finding vegan, unless you want to eat a bowl of rice everywhere you go, it's pretty difficult. Mm -hmm. So, um... It's more difficult than I'd like it to be traveling, but I can be adoptable. I'll, I'll eat dairy and eggs if I'm traveling. Um, it's easier in Latin American countries. Yeah. Beans. So beans and rice. Rice, corn. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of vegetables. Yeah. I don't think I've found that as much in Costa Rica. Like, they don't really serve vegetables as a side like we do. Mm-hmm. Um, this morning, I have a, this prolifically producing Japanese eggplant. I I just told Sophie, we got to pick all those eggplants again. We just had a harvest a couple of weeks ago. And um, we love roasted in the oven, mix a little bit of barbecue sauce on it and make pulled pork in quotation, Mm -hmm. pulled eggplant sandwiches. Mm -hmm. And they taste so much like that. And I love the innovation of vegetarian food, the innovation that you find here, especially in California. But across the United States, really, like we've kind of embraced vegetarianism and veganism. And it surprises me when I travel outside of the United States that vegetables are not as big a part of meals as you would expect them to be Mm -hmm. in countries where like anything can grow in the soil. Mm -hmm. Costa Rica, when we were there, Sophie does eat fish. She's vegetarian. Um, but she does eat fish, so we had a lot of ceviche while we were there. Mm-hmm. Costa great. Rica was easy because their traditional dish, gallo pinto. Gallo pinto. It's it's like rice a vegetarian's dream. It's vegan. Yeah. It was just rice and beans. A couple of places there was egg in it, but um, just rice and beans and tomatoes and lettuce and onions and lots. By day of... five, I'd had my fill. Uh, yeah. But... <laughs> But it was divine. It was such a relief when I first got there. I make gallo pinto, but everybody tells me it's not gallo pinto. When when I was a kid, my grandma would make it, of course, like Costa Rica, because, you know, she grew up there before she moved here. But I throw everything but the kitchen sink in it. So it's more like a succotash, I guess, or... But evidently that is the traditional way of, like, a lot of leftovers go in there. Yeah, all the leftovers go in there. That's kind of what I remember, but, you know... I, I love it. I When I went to Costa Rica, it was different than what I make, mm-hmm. you know, and I did get tired, like you said, after like the fifth day, I was like, all right, let's try something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, 
What's the most surprising thing that you've tasted somewhere, vegan-wise, that you've liked? Traveling-wise? Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't... I haven't been adventuresome eating, traveling. Oh. It's it's been difficult to find vegan, vegetarian food, and it's not like it's been particularly exciting when I have. It's been rice and beans. Rice and beans. Or noodles when you were in Vietnam. The, oh my God, the vegan pho in Vietnam was to die for. Yeah. Again, in the Sapa Mountains, it was our last couple hours, so we were hiking straight up for several hours in the rain out of the canyon. There was just a little shack where we stopped at for lunch. And I'd struggled so much to find vegetarian food in Vietnam that I was like, I'm screwed. Like, there's no way the shack is going to be able to accommodate me. And they just gave me pho with tofu and fresh chilies from, like, behind the shack. Mm. And it was freezing, and we'd been hiking, like, 15 miles a day, and it was just absolutely amazing. Hit the spot. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredible. Food tastes so much better when you've been hiking a long ways and you're up in the mountains, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. The place that we had stopped into uh, for that lunch the day before, where we intersected with other travelers... And they told us about the bride napping. We found ourselves in this home and there were like eight of us that were just women about the same age. And um, we could tell that the owner of the house and our two guides, because we got so familiar so quickly, and that doesn't always happen with tour guides. So I could tell that they were feeling very comfortable. So it was almost time for us to leave. So this is probably the most memorable thing that I ate. (laughs) (laughs) The owner of the house comes in holding a bowl. And she plops it down on the table, and it's just this, like, off-yellow liquid. And then she gives us each these tiny little, like, bowl cups. And she tells us to scoop it in. So we do, and then she cheers us and says something in her language. And then we knock it back, and it's liquor. It's rice wine. What? That they brew. <laughs> oh, my there. gosh. And was it enough like, to get drunk off? Oh. I bet it was really strong. So we, we were like, what is this? And they all laughed, and they said, happy juice. And so we all start laughing. It was strong. But, like, so we'd, you know, drink some, and then there was some custom in terms of, like, using this hand or putting it this place on the table. We were very much feeling it. But every time we were about to be done, they'd tell us to get another one because they're used to it, right? And she lives there. Anyway, I think we had about eight little shots of happy juice. (laughs) <laughs> or happy water. So we were definitely... It was a short hike to where we were staying that night, thankfully. Oh, my but God. But that was incredible. Because I don't think they pulled that out for all their tourists. It was not included in our package. That's sure. amazing. That's super cool. Yeah. And as it turned out, I found out later that day that it was uh, International Women's Day, which none of us were thinking about. I that. remember you posted about yeah. that. Because it's a much bigger deal in other countries than it is in America. So we're all at our homestays that night, and all of our guides ask us if we're settled, if we're good, and then like, okay, we're going to go. And then we just see all these women walking through the village holding, like, bouquets of flowers and holding hands with other women. And then we just hear, like, these crazy parties down the road. And I asked the owner of the homestay, like, what's going on? And they were like, well, it's International Women's Day. And we were like, yeah, but it's a big deal. Yeah, those were some really beautiful, striking photos, especially because of the colorful outfits and the flowers and the mountains, the setting. 
What a great day to be traveling. That's really awesome. Yeah, that was good timing. Speaking of travel, you know, you don't always have to leave the country to go traveling. And I know that you do your urban tours. So you've done tours through Little Tokyo, Alvera Street, Hollywood, Koreatown, just to name a few. How do you prepare for these? I mean, like, tell me about the tours. What could people expect? The companies that I've worked for, I worked for Urban Adventures before, but that dissolved during COVID. So now I work for a company called WeVenture, but very similar ethos. So the companies have, I don't want to say scripts, but they have, you know, database of historic information on all of these places. So you study it, you learn about it, then honestly, any really good tour guide does their own research too and finds what they connect to about it. And I think most good tour guides... It's not about being scholarly about it. It's about being excited about it. And then it just feels like you're walking new friends through your city, showing them around, you know? So that's the mindset that I always go into it with. And I started doing it while city walking tours nine years ago because I needed a part-time job. So I found this and it seemed like a fun way to supplement my income. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I know I'm paid well by my employer now, so I no longer have to. Although, let's face it, it's Los Angeles. It always helps to have a second income. Right. I don't have to do it to make ends meet now. But I do it because I love it. I really, really enjoy it. And we get a combination of tourists and locals alike. And with tourists, it's meaningful because you get to really show them the authentic Los Angeles, right? Something that they're not going to see if they try to go about it on their own. I was listening to some show recently where an anthropologist referred to LA as an above-ground archaeological dig. And what she meant was you have to dig, you have to search to find the gems, but they're there. And it's true. It's not like uh, New York or Chicago or San Francisco where you step off the plane and there's the Statue of Liberty, you know? And a lot of people hate that about LA. I used to hate it about LA. But now I see it as a really exciting challenge. But I like that I can take that like work out of it for tourists that only have a weekend. Because otherwise they'd leave not seeing a lot of these things and they'd be disappointed by my city. But locals, getting to show locals your city, that's, that's the gold, right? Yes. It's amazing. I agree. Well, you know, I, I love going to downtown Los Angeles. It's yeah. one of my favorite places. It's where all the culture is, all the restaurants. It's so much to see. The museums are there. But it's not just downtown Los Angeles. It's enclaves and outside of downtown Los Angeles mm-hmm. as well, where you find some serious gems. And, you know, L.A. is so sprawling and huge that almost every day, you could go out, you could leave your home and find something new that's different, that's amazing, that is stimulating. And I think downtown Los Angeles has probably one of the worst reputations mm-hmm. with locals. Mm-hmm is what I really find. And I'll come back just reinvigorated, re-energized from a trip to downtown LA to look at, you know, the old architecture, to go eat at a new eatery down there, to go see the skyline from a different rooftop, you know, performance arts, all of that. And people kind of turn off. I just watched them turn off. And there was one day where 
I was starting to go into my story about downtown Los Angeles with a friend and he goes, oh yeah, that's just drive-by country, isn't it? And I'm like, whoa, hold on. Do you know how magical that place is, you know? And- the first movie theaters in America, the talkies, yes. you know, Broadway. The history that is there is just really amazing. Yeah. You know, the Biddy Mason Memorial. Totally, which nobody knows about. Right. And it's right there. Even people that go to Grand Central Market and know about all of that, they don't know what's across the street. Yeah. You know? They don't know what's up in the financial district, yeah. which is a lot of those plazas have sculpture gardens, beautiful fountains designed by notables in architecture and in art. People don't know about Lillian Disney's secret garden. I don't. See? And you don't. Know, but that's what's so exciting. There you go. After five years in D.C., I felt like I... I'm sure there was more to see, but I felt like I'd seen almost all of it. Mm -hmm. I never feel that way in LA. Yeah. It's it's a magical place. So many different places to, to see. I, and you can get up in the morning with a beach sunrise uh -huh. and be up in the mountains by afternoon and in the evening head out to the desert. Mm -hmm. And we just have such diverse biomes. Yeah. And they're nearby enough that you can go to all of these within a day that, yeah. I think taking people on tours of Hollywood is probably my favorite. I prefer downtown to Hollywood, but leading tours of Hollywood may be my favorite because it's the most surprising to people. Because mm -hmm. locals and tourists alike get to Hollywood and they're like, oh my God, it's just loud and it's full of hustlers and neon and there's a gap. And But old Hollywood is still intact. And like, if you just have someone that can help you step beyond the veil, you you can touch Marilyn Monroe's ghost at the Roosevelt. You know what I mean? Or like most people don't even know that the Hollywood Museum is right there at the intersection of Hollywood and Highland. It's got four floors of over a hundred years worth of Hollywood memorabilia. Marilyn Monroe became a blonde there. Lucille Ball became a redhead there and their dressing rooms, their hair and makeup rooms are still intact. You know? That's amazing. But nobody nobody knows about that place. Yeah. And it's like fifteen. And then right next door, right well, right nearby anyway, over at Grauman's, you can see Marilyn Monroe's handprints mm -hmm. in that really nice quote of hers about anybody could be anything. Mm -hmm. Something like and that. I don't remember what her quote is. Hotel where like the Roosevelt's amazing. I mean, there's so much history there. The first ever Academy Awards were held there, you know, in a 15-minute ceremony. But if you're just walking on Hollywood Boulevard and, like, getting distracted by the Superman that wants to take a picture with you, like, you're going to pass by it. I mean, it is a beautiful building on the outside, but not strikingly so immediately. But if you just open the door, you're suddenly in this incredible wonderland, mm. you know? So I love that. I love being able to pull back the veil for people in Hollywood. Yeah. And then just the history of the Egyptian. The Egyptian's such a cool place because they actually have, at least the last time that I went, just before COVID hit, they still had $13 movies mm -hmm. and they would have a historian mm -hmm. telling you about how this movie was created, who the people were. There was um, the 75th anniversary of Cleopatra. That movie theater was actually built for the premiere of Cleopatra, but it wasn't finished in time. So Cleopatra premiered at Grauman's, mm -hmm. which sadly is now like the TCL 
But TCL stands for the creative life, which is kind of fun. But I just, <laughs> I wish that they would leave the names, you know. I think I, everyone still refers to it as Grommans. As Grommans. I do. Yeah. So, I do too. I do. But you're right. There is, there's so much history there and you just have to look for it. And then off of Hollywood Boulevard, there's a lot of other places. Hollywood High School's over there. Mm-hmm. There's so many places along Melrose. But, I mean, you just get into so many of the little enclaves. Yeah, I do like Larchmont. Um, Then you have Hollywood Forever Cemetery right Mm -hmm. there, which is really awesome. And even, like, the non-historic stuff. Like, there's a lot of, like, frat house type of places along Hollywood Boulevard. But, again, there's Michelli's, the oldest Italian restaurant with, like, the singing waitstaff, right? Yeah. And all the bottles hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. And you would never think to step inside of there unless you were with somebody that knew. Or Bordner's. Or even, again, places that aren't historic, but, like, all the speakeasies tucked in there, right? So there's Good Times at Davy Wayne's, where you enter through an Airstream refrigerator, and then you're in a 1970s shag carpet living room while somebody's playing the Bee Gees on a turntable. Like, it's fun. Yeah. And those are things that you would never find unless you're actually looking Mm -hmm. for them, you know. Do you have a, um, well, you just said Hollywood is probably your favorite tour. It's not my favorite tour. It's just my favorite thing to reveal to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that the old company that I, that I worked with, we did an ethnic neighborhoods food and culture tour, and we went, took people through Koreatown, Thai Town, and Little Armenia on foot to prove to people that, yes, we do walk and take the bus in L.A., and we would just pop into little hole-in-the-wall places and let people try samples of foods from those different cultures. Um, and then, of course, talk about the history of immigration to Los Angeles from those countries. Yes. And, just again tourists and locals alike we weren't walking through glamorous neighborhoods you know but we were showing them the real LA and yeah it's not glamorous but look how beautiful it still is Mm. you know through food and through cultural exchange so I think that was my favorite to date for sure I know you did one on Alvera Street and there was like taco tasting Mm -hmm. and tequila or something like that taco and film locations taco and film locations so you're standing in line for um, a carnitas taco and across the street is the Bradbury building and you're yeah. talking about that filming location and all of that they've turned that into a bar oh I know I heard about that yeah. but it hasn't been open when I've gone oh I yeah I haven't been over that way in a little bit so maybe we can go together and check it out I think that would be really cool and get some tacos and get some tacos oh yeah they have such amazing food um when you were talking about those neighborhoods you know i had read a book with sophie by lisa c called i believe it's called beautiful girls and i might have the name wrong but i will post the correct name i'll update it in the show notes And it's historical fiction. Lisa C., her family owned a store in L.A.'s Chinatown. And so when she writes her books, it's got a lot of this history in there. And she very accurately described Chinatown and the meaning of all of these different plazas there and how it connected at one time because it was really a movie set. Chinatown and Alvera Street Mm -hmm. and then there was a fire that kind of separated them now there's all these buildings in between but I've done this on foot too we actually did a walking tour self-guided walking tour you can find them online and went through several places in Chinatown and and after we finished reading that book we were looking for all of the Lee 
places because the Lee family owned so many places and and you find them I don't know that the Lee family was the real family like how much of it is fiction and how much of it is not but that was a lot of fun and we ended up eating in a restaurant that was used in the rush hour film and you just you know walking through Los Angeles is completely doable and a lot of fun Mm -hmm. you know you see so much Mm -hmm. there's so much and we don't see it because we're driving Mm -hmm. and we're stuck in traffic right so right I always encourage people to take walking tours of their cities because they'll just see things that they never knew were there yeah I agree let's cover some of the things that you're doing over at the Arboretum and ways that people can get connected with the Arboretum we have a few different programs well we have loads of different programs we have wellness programs for adults we have art programs for adults we have horticulture programs for adults our children's programs we have the summer camp programs we have nature club which is an after-school program and a saturday morning program that's a shorter version of our summer camp program and the main focus i guess that's important to note the main focus of our children's programs we want to spark joy we want to get them outdoors and connecting with nature but more than anything we're using nature programming as an opportunity to foster empathy at a young age and i think nature and joy in nature is one of the best ways that you can do that so like we have a colony of hissing cockroaches that we keep in our classroom And as adults, we hear that and we're completely creeped out. First of all, cockroaches, period, but a colony of hissing cockroaches from Madagascar, right? But most of these kids don't know yet that they're supposed to be afraid of those things or that they're supposed to think they're gross. Or if they do, they're still plastic enough that if we ask them, well, why? They don't know what to say, right? Or they'll say, oh, well, it's gross because it's ugly. And then we'll say, well, what's ugly about it? And tell me an insect that you think is pretty. Well, a butterfly is pretty. Well, why is a cockroach ugly? Well, because it's dark and it's it's got that scaly shell. Well, let's, let's really look at the body of a butterfly, right? Like, so then you put them side by side and they're really not all that different. And, you know, butterflies are wonderful. They're pollinators, etc. But cockroaches are decomposers. Worms are decomposers. We're creeped out by worms, but we wouldn't have food to eat if it wasn't for worms, right? So nature provides you with the opportunity to teach children empathy for the other. And it may sound like a Pollyanna stretch, but if you can get a kid to stop and check their bias about a cockroach, that has a far-reaching effect, Mm -hmm. you know? That makes complete sense. This what is it is similar to? to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like this person looks different from me. This person is a different color from me. Or this person has a face that I don't like for whatever reason. But does that mean that they're inherently bad? And that's a natural reaction. You know, I remember, sadly, there was a man when I think Cameron was about three years old and he got out of his car right next to us while we were standing there and he'd been through clearly um, some horrific accident Mm -hmm. that really really impacted his face Mm -hmm. and Cameron looked up at him and immediately hid behind me and so of course I had the conversation that it was okay you know and just kind of taught him empathy that way but I think it's good to start 
early and to start with things that are different than Mm -hmm. just humans because that's going to extrapolate not just to humans but it's also going to extrapolate to ideas and concepts and perspectives Mm -hmm. that others bring into the world and I think that's so important um I had a couple of things with what you were saying that I wanted to bring up you had to bring home the hissing cockroaches and you did not like them very and much tarantulas. and two tarantulas and two tarantulas <laughs> but we all you know sheltered in place together yeah that was uh it bonded us it did that was your your covid um taking one for the team they just couldn't stay there. Somebody had to take care of them. So Brooke brought them home and we got to follow her journey <laughs> on Facebook and going from not being very happy to have them to actually being quite fascinated by them. Well, they were they were my bunker buddies, <laughs> you know? So they were uncomfortable being in my apartment. I was too, you know, but we got through it together. How long do the cockroaches live for? I have no idea. No. <laughs> I should know. But they made it through COVID. Oh, yeah. And back. I mean, they've, they've had, I think, three generations of, maybe four generations of babies since then. And they produce about 40 viable young every time. Wow. So. And I know that Madagascar hissing cockroaches are quite different than the cockroaches that people are afraid of in their homes. Mm-hmm. But they're no better and no worse, right? Mm-hmm. Like on one hand, they're less terrifying to people because they're slower moving, so they're not going to scurry the same way. At the same time, they're enormous, you know? They are huge. I, and I, I can't really speak to house cockroaches either, but the environments that house cockroaches are attracted to, I think if they could be out on a forest floor eating decomposing lemons, they'd much rather be there mm-hmm. than in your kitchen, mm-hmm. right? So if they are in our gross, smelly trash, like we have a hand in that, right? We're contributing to those environments. Yeah. So, but I don't know all that much about cockroaches, actually. I just know that the Madagascar ones make wonderful pets and they're gonna outlive us all, so. And do they hiss? Mine don't as much anymore because they're, <laughs> they're very socialized. But yeah, and it's just a phenomenal adaptation. They live in colonies. So if you're a predatory bird flying over the forest floor in the mood for a snack, and as you approach, you just hear this, the, the hiss of hundreds of cockroaches, you're going to think twice before you swoop down because you're going to assume that it's something that could hurt you. How fascinating is that? That is. You know? And also something that's really good for kids because children feel vulnerable, right? So teaching them that something as small and defenseless as a cockroach can be clever and if they band together, you know, socially, they can protect one another. Mm -hmm. Just so many good teachable moments with that kind of stuff. That's amazing. Insects fascinate me because they have so many adaptations that you wouldn't ever think of. And, you know, just so many of them go through these crazy metamorphic stages where, you know, just even a ladybug, ladybug nymphs or larvae, they're the ones that eat, but they're the hungriest little aphid eaters. And they look like elongated, non-rolling roly-polies. They just have like all of these striations Mm -hmm. and they're black with a little bit of red on them. 
look nothing like a ladybug. Uh-huh. But that's another thing that we use in our programming because kids, I've never met a child that was afraid of a ladybug. Why? Because we've told them they don't have to be. Right. Right? They're red. They're cute. But they will they have freak out dots. if they see their, their larvae because they look like tiny alligators. So when I tell them, that's just a teenage ladybug, that's a very powerful moment, you know? And so we'll ask them, like, well, why are you not afraid of a ladybug, but you're afraid of a black beetle? Not all ladybugs are red. They come in different colors, including black. But if it landed on you and it was a black beetle, you'd be freaking out. Why? Like, let's talk about that, you know? And children are smart. They're smart enough to be like, oh, yeah, interesting. And then thankfully in my work, I'm not just with them for a day. So being with them for several weeks at a time, I get to see those perspectives cemented and I get to see their worldview and their behaviors change according to that kind of stuff, you know? And it, it, it may sound insignificant, but I genuinely believe that planting those seeds, I, I, I think it goes a long way in terms of the types of adults that we found. I think so too. Um, when I was a kid, my grandma would punish me, I'm not going to speak for my sister. She was much younger than I was, but she would definitely punish me. I remember being in preschool and she put a bunch of fire ants in a, in a baggie, sealed it up, stuck the whole bag in my pants. Are you... Yes, I'm not kidding. What? I'm not kidding. Um, and I do remember sitting there shaking uncontrollably because I was so frightened that these ants were going to get loose and bite me and I didn't get bitten but that created a mental connection and I spent a lifetime I mean half of my life I wouldn't say a lifetime but really until my early to mid 20s being terrified I had a horrible phobia of bugs horrible so it was it was the worst thing ever I was afraid of flies a crane fly just came up from the floorboards of a moving car and I opened the door and almost jumped out into traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had those incidents and eventually, I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating all the stuff that I read. And like you said, worms, if we didn't have worms, I know they're connected with death and decay and all of that, but if we didn't have them, the soil would not be aerated. They aerate the soil. They also fertilize it. I was terrified of worms my whole life. Really? I never held the cockroach as a kid's base. I let my staff do that. But when I started leading these programs at the Arboretum, I just thought, this is ridiculous. I've got this entire program dedicating to helping children not be fearful of these creatures, but I'm too scared to touch them. And in my defense, like I didn't have someone like me that was you know, helping me move past that as a kid. but kind of similar to you this one day I was like this is this is kind of ridiculous you know that a worm can't hurt you you know this is ridiculous so I had a little can of red wigglers that I had bought for a composting activity we were going to do and I just opened it up and I took a deep breath and I picked one of them up and I felt it's insanely muscular body like, <laughs> move aggressively in my fingers and it made me phenomenally uncomfortable and then I just placed it on my hand and it writhed and wiggled and I hated every moment of it and I'm still not excited when I touch them that I do it now Mm -hmm. you know 
cockroaches I don't struggle with anymore. I struggled with in the beginning. Um, but now I just pick them up like they're cats. Worms, I still have moments with them, but you also just like, I'm standing here with 24 children lined up eagerly with their hands out. Like, I want one, I want one, I want one. And I'm here at 44 years old, like, ugh, no. Right, you can't. Right? So. You gotta model so the. there's my answer. That's what they've taught me. To not be afraid courageous. to check my biases. And to not be afraid of the things that I've been conditioned to be afraid of. I love that. If you had one thing to tell the world, one thing that you could tell the world, what would it be? Some advice, seek a quote. Joy. Whatever your joy is, just seek it. You know, again, I, I don't mean to sound nihilistic, but it's a hard world. It's, it's, it's going to continue to be hard. So don't miss out on an opportunity to experience beauty and seek joy. And like if you find it, in somebody else just spend your time appreciating that and them and it just seek joy yeah we have to what other choice do we really have i think that another way of looking at that is you know live life to its fullest be aware be mindful be be alive it's where creativity comes from you know i mean it just joy does so much but you know like we said too creativity comes from so many different places and and i will say that one of the times when i felt most alive was when i thought i was going to drown in the middle of the ocean in a kayak in a storm that hit us all of a sudden so um seek joy be adventurous <laughs> that means to you right like yeah. joy looks very different for me than it does for somebody else right adventure joyful adventure is very different for me than for somebody else like joyful adventure for me is hanging bridges in a rainforest but that would be miserable for somebody else whereas joyful adventure for somebody else could be skydiving or just like playing video games all day on a sunday i would i would hate that you know, but that's a joyful adventure for somebody for else. Somebody, yeah. So there's no you know description for it. Sophie and I just, we had a little bit of time in between some activities at the museum this past weekend. So right outside of the California Science Center, which is right next door to the Natural History Museum as well, is a rose garden. Mm -hmm. And so we went out there, we found a shady patch of grass, and we just laid down on it. Mm -hmm and just watch the trees we were underneath the cassia tree that was blooming with its beautiful golden flowers and then we started noticing oh look there's a date palm over here and there's this other tree and there's some agapanthus behind us and you know started naming all of the different flowers that were there and then we started noticing oh there's like two little hummingbirds sitting up mm -hmm. there and you looked up we looked up yeah we laid down and looked up yeah i love that I always tell people on my tours, don't forget to look up because mm -hmm. there's a lot to see. I hope that you enjoyed listening to that episode in its entirety. Continue to seek joy and don't forget to look up. Also, please check the show notes for selected links and also keep sending in your questions and comments. I read all of them. 
If you have a fun, amazing, or inspiring story to share, drop me a line. I'd love to hear it. The world needs more amazing stories. Please also take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, adventure, joy, curiosity, beauty, and a really lovely Thanksgiving.